Thanks, Lorraine. And for those who don't know me, my name is Jeff Leader. I'm part of the ministry team here, and uh, it's a great privilege to be a part of the team. We're going to be looking at our enduring value today. Stuart mentioned earlier, faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and enduring. So we're going to try and unpack that because when you kind of think about it, what does enduring as a Christian believer really mean? And uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12. I'll state before I start, there are a lot of passages about running a race and enduring uh, right throughout uh, the Bible. But uh, today I just want to focus on that one passage in Hebrews th- uh, chapter 12. Before we move on, let's, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer for a moment. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word. And we thank you that we can read it and study it and take it on board for ourselves. Lord, we pray as we look at this passage this morning that you would challenge us, that you would teach us, instruct us and guide us. We ask this through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I said, uh, we're learning how to live a life as a Christian disciple or apprentice of Jesus. Now let's just jump back to ancient times. Let's do that. The ancient Greeks and Romans were very keenly interested in athletic contests, not only for their physical well-being but also for the honour of the towns or the countries or the cities that they represented. It was a patriotic thing to be a good athlete and to bring glory to your country in the sports arena. And there on the screens is a picture of some athletes. Um, it's interesting, most of the uh, pictures, I, I, when I was looking around for a suitable picture, most of them were sort of displaying naked athletes, which I didn't think was really appropriate for a Sunday morning. But that's probably a good representation up there without stretching the friendship. So as I said, in Hebrews chapter 12, we have these two, two themes in the entire chapter of athletics and citizenship. Now, the image of a foot race was very well known to these early Christian believers. And what we're picturing here in this passage is that the runners or the contestants, they're finished with their training. They lay aside their training weights and they're ready with their, to compete They're ready for the main event, the race they have trained for, they've prepared. And they would all start, but some would get weary and drop out with fatigue. It's a bit more modern picture of one guy who just couldn't make it to the end, fatigued, exhausted. Whereas others will endure the strain and press on with tired muscles and aching feet all the way to the end to win the prize. Now the writer uses the picture of the race in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 13 to talk about this whole theme of endurance. And then in the rest of the chapter from verses 14 to 29 he talks about citizenship in the heavenly city. And in the minds of his readers these two themes would go together for no one could take part in the official games unless they're a citizen of a country or nation they represented. So as I said, the main thing that runs through this chapter is that of endurance. The Jewish believers who received this letter 
were getting weary. And they're on the verge of giving up. As all life was getting very hard, but told precisely what their issues were. But I imagine they were being persecuted to some degree. They're probably being ostracized as being different from the pagan people around them who are worshipping all sorts of idols and statues and things. They're probably treated as outcasts. And this is hard. And it's tempting to just step back. This is all too hard to stand up for what I believe in. I'll just withdraw into my little cocoon into my house and do my own thing in my own way. But the writer of the Hebrews, encourages them to keep moving forward in their Christian lives, to endure, to push on, like the runners on the track. Because the prize at the end of the day is an incredible prize. It's so valuable, important and significant that they've got to keep running and endure to the end, even when the going gets tough. So how does he encourage them? and us to endure. Well, first of all, as uh, Lorraine pointed out, he encouraged us with the example of other winners who have run the race before. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, these words are meant to be an encouragement, but they're usually taken out of context in the sense that they are taken to mean that we have this great array of departed saints sitting in a heavenly grandstand who are spectators of our progress, or lack of it, and they can see what we are doing and that they're standing up there on the sidelines cheering us on, encouraging us to persevere or to endure. However, when you dig into the context, it's actually suggesting something entirely different. For such a great cloud refers primarily to those Old Testament believers mentioned in chapter 11. People like Abel and Enoch and Moses, Isaac, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, Moses, David and so on. They are actually mentioned, they're there as examples. They're there for us to look at them, not for them to look at us. So when you think about it, if you're in heaven, who wants to look back here? He focused on the Lord and all his glory. So they are meant to be examples for us. And we receive their witness to God's faithfulness as we read about them in Scripture. And they still speak to us today, even though they are dead. They are witnesses to us as examples of enduring faith, not as a heavenly cheer squad. These godly men and women in the Old Testament, knew what it was to endure through the difficulties of life. And so as we look at their example to us and reflect on our own lives, you know, if you're having problems with your family, read the story of Joseph. If you think your job is too big for you, study the life of Moses or perhaps even Nehemiah. If you're tempted to retaliate, See how David handled this problem in his life. But then next the writer tells us to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So inspired by the example of self-discipline, 
of those described in chapter 11. In our life of faith, we should first get rid of things which are not in themselves wrong, but which actually slow us down, which hinder us, which impede our progress as maturing Christian believers. And secondly, sinful things which trip us up. In, um, in ancient times, when athletes were preparing for the, the games, they used to strap weights around their legs to help them prepare for their events that build up the muscles. But no athlete would actually go into the games with their training weights slapped to their, uh, strapped to their legs. Because that would slow them down a bit, wouldn't it? It would hinder their progress. Too much weight would tax their endurance to get to the end. So just in reflection, what are the weights that we should remove so that we might win the race, that we might endure? What are the things in your life that hinders your progress in developing a relationship with the Lord? Now, these things might be good things in the eyes of others, but then a winning athlete doesn't choose between the good and the bad. They choose between the better and the best. For example, it may be working excessively long hours at your job, leaving little or no time or energy for your family, let alone a relationship with Jesus. It may mean overextending yourself financially with mortgages and loans, which leaves you with uh, being bogged down with worry and stress. Or maybe not looking after yourself physically, if not eating the proper food, of exercising, or not getting enough sleep. These are the things that hinder us in our walk. The writer also says we should get rid of sin, the sin that so easily entangles. And while no specific sin is mentioned here, the writer is probably referring to the sin of unbelief. Because it was, when you look back in the Bible, it was unbelief that kept Israel from entering into the promised land after they'd um, fled from Egypt. And it is likewise, it is unbelief that hinders us from entering into our, in, entering into our spiritual inheritance in Jesus. It hinders sin, hinders us from developing that close personal relationship with our Lord and Saviour. You know, in um, just jumping back from out to chapter 11, the words by faith are used 21 times in that chapter. And that indicates that it is faith in Jesus that enables us to endure. It enables us to put aside the things that hinder us, to put us to get rid of the sin in our life by faith. And when we actually believe God's promises of provision, that he will supply all our needs, that he'll take care of us when we need him, we can then, we're able to then trust in his ability to provide for what we need in this life and to stop trying to provide for Stop trying to provide for ourselves. 
So the writer, sorry, the writer then says to fix our eyes upon Jesus in order to run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Yeah, sorry. Tells us to fix our eyes upon Jesus. So this is the key phrase in this whole passage. If you don't get anything else today, get this. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. This is key. This is important. This is what this whole message of endurance is about. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. And I'll unpack this in this moment. You see, whereas the people of the Old Testament looked for a Messiah or a Christ, someone who was foretold by the prophets long ago, they were waiting expectantly for the Messiah to come. But come to the time of the Hebrews when this letter was written, these people could actually look to the risen Lord Jesus Christ who had fulfilled those prophecies. He had come in the flesh. He was a real person. He was a reality. But the writer is well aware that his readers and us can't actually do us with our own physical eyes, but he also knows what can be seen by faith. To fix our eyes on Jesus is to remember his status who is he? He is God and he is man. It is to remember what he did, to fix our eyes upon his obedience, to fix our eyes upon his suffering and death on the cross, to focus on his resurrection and his exaltation to the right hand of God in heaven. It is to believe in the Jesus described in the rest of the book of Hebrews and indeed the whole of the Bible and in particular the, the New Testament. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. He is the one we need to focus on because Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He is the source and final fulfilment of our faith. The, some of the old, older translations say he is the author, he is the originator. This is what our, he, he is what our faith is based upon. We believe in a person, not in a philosophy. He's the author or pioneer. But he's also the perfecter. He's the one that fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. He's the one who's won the victory over sin and death. The writer goes on to say he is also the one who for the joy set before him he endured the cross, scorning its shame. In other words, Jesus is endured a shameful, horrible, painful death. But there was a purpose. It was in order to have the joy of completing his purpose on earth. To, he won the victory. He received the joy of his Father in heaven, welcoming him back to heaven. You almost hear the father saying, well done, my beloved son. But it's also the joy of bringing others to salvation, to share the joy and see other people putting their faith in him and welcoming them into heaven likewise. That's the joy that we're talking about. Now Jesus endured far more than any of the other heroes of faith mentioned in chapter 11. However, he is the perfect example for us to follow. He endured the cross. And this involves shame 
suffering, rejection, abuse, abandonment. On the cross, he suffered for all the sins of all the world. Yet he endured and he finished the work the Father gave him to do. Though the readers of the Hebrews had suffered some persecution, it says later that they had not yet resisted unto blood. In other words, they haven't been martyred for their faith. They'd suffered, but they'd not suffered to the point of facing execution, as Jesus had and some of the believers mentioned in chapter 11. None of them was yet a martyr. But in Jesus' battle against sin, he gave his blood. And he's not just a human Jesus who has endured shame and calls for us to do the same. He's not just a human Jesus with whom we can easily identify and our weaknesses. Then we take as an example. This Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. He was, he's given a place of honour and privilege in heaven. He is God. And he's now in the place of supreme power and authority in the universe. And from that position, he can now effectively help us in our times of need and hardship. So to fix our eyes upon Jesus is not to escape from the world. It's an encouragement to keep living in it, persevering or enduring with God's help. Let me tell you, life is hard. All of us will experience hardship of some kind. How will you get through? How will you cope? How will you endure? With your eyes fixed upon Jesus. What was it that enabled Jesus to endure the cross? It was his faith that enabled him to endure. He kept the eye of faith on the joy set before him. He had a focus, a purpose, a goal. He knew he would return to heaven in glory, having completed the Father's will. And we also know that we will have a place in heaven with him when we finish having run the race and endured our race set before us. So since Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, trusting him has a few benefits. It releases his power into our lives. For instance, we could, going back to the athletics uh, metaphor, we, we could try to follow the example of some great athlete for years. We could look at their progress, now that we could watch their training, etc., etc. And it would still be a failure at that sport. But if in our younger days that athlete could have entered into our lives and shared their know-how and shared their ability and trained us and trained with us, it could have possibly made us winners. And likewise, Jesus, when we look at Jesus, he is both our example, he's also our enabler. As we see him in his word and yield to his Holy Spirit, he increases our faith and enables us to run the race. We're then given yet another reason for endurance in verse 11, and that is discipline. Now, this is a bit of a tough word to get your heads around. Um, I think we sort of knocked around the word correction. It might be a softer, more understandable word. 
But the reality is God's love is received in the discipline of hardship. The trials of a Christian believer's life are seen as spiritual discipline that help a believer mature. In fact, the reality is it is usually through suffering, through hardship, through times of trial, that we actually mature spiritually as Christians. Because it's at these times when we're feeling vulnerable and helpless and even desperate that we're forced to our knees and basically say, God, help me. I cannot do this anymore in my own strength. Lord, help me. We throw ourselves at his feet. And it's at these times that we find our Heavenly Father is right there with us, walking this journey with us. And he helps us to endure that time of suffering and hardship. And he's promised in his word, he's promised to stand with us in these times and to provide the resilience and the resources we need to get through to the end. It's at these times when we reach the end of our own abilities, we learn how great God is. And we learn to become totally dependent upon God to provide for our needs. And in this way we grow closer to him and our relationship with him deepens and matures. It's only, more often than not, only through times of suffering and hardship that our relationship with the Lord grows, develops and deepens. But when things go wrong and we're frustrated, it's easy to think that God does not truly love us. And to see things going wrong is a sign of God's perhaps anger towards us or his neglect of us. But this isn't the case. And Have a look at verses 5 and 6. He says, And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says in Proverbs, in reference to Proverbs 3, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. So therefore, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Now we're talking about a good father here, not an abusive father, so let me make that clear. But the writer is reminding them and us that only children who are never disciplined are those who are disregarded by their parents. It's a sign that they're not cared for or loved. But God is our heavenly father, our good father, deals with us as adult children because we have been adopted into his family and we're given an adult standing in his family. We have rights and responsibilities as his children. Satan wants us to believe that the difficulties in life that we encounter, our hardships, are proof that God does not love us. But actually the opposite is true. Our Heavenly Father does not want us to be pampered babies. 
He wants us to become mature adults who can be trusted with the responsibilities of life. And, you know, we develop the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Wonderful fruits. These are fruits, not gifts. These are things that we're supposed to develop our character. We're supposed to develop these things as we deal with the problems and frustrations of life with God's help. And without those frustrations and problems, we'd probably remain very immature and untrustworthy or unworthy of his kingdom. It'd be easy to grow weary and tired. But then the writer uses the picture of the discipline of the earthly parents to further illustrate his point. He says, firstly, um, moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for us. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us. Yeah. They disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good in order that we may share in his holiness. We're talking about our good heavenly Father here and his method of discipline. But the writer is realistic enough to recognise that no discipline ever seems pleasant. doesn't seem pleasant at the time. It's tough. It's painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained in it. So there's a purpose, a corrective purpose in the discipline of God. And, you know, when we encounter tough times of hardship or discipline, it's not pleasant. And even in our own families, it's not pleasant to be a parent who has to discipline a child. But the end results, the end benefits are meant to be helpful and profitable and beneficial. A loving father does not enjoy having to discipline his children. But the benefits afterwards make the discipline an evidence of his love. So then we come back to the race metaphor in verse 12. Those who run the race with perseverance throw off the things that hinder them. They fix their eyes on the goal. They fix their eyes firmly on Jesus who has finished ahead of them and they are trained by receiving God's loving discipline. In fact, the writer knows that his readers are not in the best condition for this race. That's why he's writing to encourage them. And so he encourages them in words from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 35 and Proverbs 4.6 in this sentence. Therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. In the case of our Heavenly Father, these benefits include a closer relationship with him, a life of peace, his peace, a peace that passes all understanding, a peace with other people in our relationships with other people. And as we train ourselves in righteous, godly living, obeying his commands, this is the result, peace. 
and harmony will come and a life of joy. Joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the consequences of getting slack in our daily quiet times, in our reading of God's word, is that we lose the encouragement that we have there, which in turn brings us to the edge of giving up. If we're not reading our Bibles, we're not learning more about God, about Jesus. We're not finding those passages of encouragement that help us to endure, that give us wisdom to deal with various situations in life. If we're not familiar with it, then how can it help us? And the only way we get familiar, can get familiar with it is to read it. And better still, meditate on it. Study it. Let it soak in. Because it's life-giving. Likewise, when we neglect to pray, when we stop talking to God, when we stop share, talk, like having a focused prayer time is good, but also our daily walk with him. This is a conversation. It should be a conversation where we can share our needs, our desires, we can share our hopes and our dreams. But if we're not doing that, if we're not praying with God, where's the relationship? God's going to seem very distant, remote, that he might be uninterested or even irrelevant to our situation. And so we won't be able to draw on his strength, his provision to deal with the hardships and trials of this life. And when we stop meeting with our fellow believers, you know, we isolate ourselves and lose the encouragement and help others can give us. When we stop coming to church and just say, oh, coming to church, a bit of a routine, oh, I can skip it this week or skip it, you know, it becomes all too easy. Or coming to life group, we can spend a bit more time sharing out of the word and encouraging each other with our prayers. You can't, unless you invest in relationships, they're not going to happen. But this is what our gatherings are meant to be. Not just learning. Yes, we hear the Bible read to us. It's the most important thing. We explain the Bible. But it's also the fellowship we have that's meant to be an encouragement and joy. And the little picture at the bottom of the slide there shows one runner helping the other to get to the end, and I think that's what it's all about. We're meant to be helping each other. Because in this life we will encounter tough times, I said before. We may lose someone who is close to us, who is dear to us. We may experience financial hardship. We may have to suffer physically through periods of illness or infirmity. We may be hurt by broken relationships and false accusations and unfair criticisms. We may experience deep concern over our children's decisions in life. A whole host of other things. But will your faith survive these times? Is your faith resting on a sure and firm foundation? Is it unshakable and resilient and will it endure? That's what we're called to do. Establish 
and maintain that firm foundation in the word of God and in Jesus' death on the cross and fix our eyes on him. Because if we're looking aside and looking this way and that way and not looking at Jesus, we're depending on our own selves. But when we look at him, he is there to help us, to supply what we need. Is your faith unshakable and resilient and will it endure? Only you can answer those questions. But the answer, the solution is simple. Keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And just as a final note, it's all in the tree brochure. Are you enduring? Are you... Is it going to come up? Yes. Great questions in this little tree brochure. If you haven't got one, they're on the table at the back. Ask your brothers and sisters how they are going in the race set before them. How are they going spiritually? Where are they struggling in need of encouragement? Are they reading their Bibles? Are they spending time with the Lord in prayer? They're tough questions. And sometimes... We actually have to have somebody in our life who knows us well enough to be able to actually ask us those questions, to care enough to ask those questions. They're important questions, but they're meant to be an encouragement, not a rebuke. Maybe sometimes it is a rebuke, but this is how we are meant to help each other. And it's only as we're in relationship with others that our relationship with each other would deepen and grow and develop and develop to the point of honesty where we can challenge each other in our spiritual walk. Because ultimately, as we fix our eyes upon Jesus, we want to grow in our relationship with him. We need each other to keep our hearts, our eyes, our minds focused on him and him above all else. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you that you've called us to be part of your family. Lord, help us to submit our lives to you in every way, in every area, and help us to grow in our knowledge and love of you in a way that's meaningful, enjoyable, challenging and exciting. Lord, give us we pray the things we need to face the hardships in life, the resilience, the wisdom to endure and to finish well, finish that race well as we look forward to spending eternity in heaven with you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.